Welcome to the Denverse. I'm Derek. I'm Quinn. And this has been quite a weekend week for Denver sports. We are doing this episode at our first remote location, my backyard. We moved <laughs> it to dispel any worries you might have had about how we were doing this during the coronavirus. We are socially distancing in the backyard. Exactly. Um, yeah, recording for like an hour and a half inside of a room is not proper social distancing, but we're out here in the great outdoors. Um, we'll add extra layers of sound with maybe perhaps barking dogs, squawking birds, uh, lawnmowers, a real Colorado summer experience. A lot of podcasts do remotes at golf courses, and we're nowhere near that, so we're <laughs> in the backyard. Uh, I feel like last week when we talked, we were very theoretical about like what sports means, and then this weekend we got the emotional aspect of what sports actually is in that connection, starting with the Friday night Rockies game where they had a one-run lead going into the ninth inning. Closer Wade Davis comes in, gives up a homer to tie the game, and then a three-run homer to go down three, just the agony, and then the Rockies almost In between back. a couple walks as well, if I'm not Yeah, the walks to get the two guys on, and then just the agony, and then the Rockies almost come back and still suffer defeat. And that was the first moment where I was like, oh, Sports can be awful, and they're just so emotionally investing. Yeah, there was a moment where, like, I wanted to text you, but then I was like, is that going to screw up the Rockies mojo? Like, all of my, like, stupid superstition stuff, and I needed to go to the bathroom, but I didn't even go through the commercials because I was like, I need to stay sitting right here. Um, yeah, it, it came in like a wrecking ball, like, oh, geez, this is the anxiety and stress <laughs> that I was missing for the past four months. The existential crisis sucked, but not the sports stress the way that it came back. And then we got to watch the Nuggets not really show up for a game against Miami the next morning, and it really felt like we were in the doldrums. It was like, oh, I forgot this Nuggets team can't play together, and we have injuries to Jamal Murray, Will Barton, and Gary Harris. What are we even doing here? <laughs> Why is there a Nuggets season right now? Yeah, man. Um, that was very similar to the playoffs of last year. Like, I wake up in the morning and feel like this is an important day for me as a human being. That's what I felt that Saturday morning. And then the game started, and it just felt weird, like the terrain of the emotions, rooting for it, and then in the third quarter, they just absolutely sucked, and it's like, um, perhaps this wasn't a good idea after all. So then we go to the Avalanche on Sunday. They're playing the Blues in the first of the round-robin games, where they're already in the playoffs. They know they're one of the top four seeds. They're playing the other of the top four seeds to figure out if they're, like, where they are, one through four, and they really outplay the Blues the entire game, but find themselves down one nothing going into the third period. And you're like, oh, I forgot about this with hockey. A good goalie can steal a series for you, and we're about to go into the playoffs. But a great play by Ryan Graves on a second attempt makes it 1-1, and then the clock is winding down. There's 10 seconds left on the clock. It's going down. The Avs are on the power play. Landis Cog shoots. It looks like time is going to expire, and suddenly the puck is in the back of the net. We get a review to find out what happened, and we find out with Less than 0.1 seconds left. It's officially 0.01 seconds left. The Avs win the game against the Blues in regulation. Dude, it's like remembering the, especially last season going into this season, like Avs power plays were always like nail biters. And so often it was like, well, that wasn't <laughs> worth the excitement. Um, to see like that whole power play, like that full, like 
a full solid minute was just like smacking the puck close to the goal, bouncing back off, getting possession again. And it was like this beautiful dance and for it to end on like the most technically last millisecond of a second um, score, just beautiful. And the uh, photo of Kadri, just like almost troll facing the camera as the puck bounces off of his stick. Incredible. So amazing. And then, of course, the Nuggets end up taking the Oklahoma City Thunder to overtime in a game that they were way down late. It looked like it was all over. Classic Nuggets comeback. Jokic just decided he was going to take over after a great uh, performance from Michael Porter Jr. They win in overtime, and you're just like, okay, we're all back. Sports are great. Yeah. And, okay, see, props to them for a team that I love to hate for a really long time. Chris Paul, a player I love to hate for a long time. That team is, like, good and fun to watch. And I think, although Nuggets got whooped by by Miami, I was going into the game like, just look better than you did. But then to see them like, okay, this is what a Nuggets team looks like when they care and they know how to take care of the basketball. Um, I think they had 18 turnovers against Miami. Um went into the second half of the OKC game with nine turnovers and ended with just 12. So they really, like, focused, locked down, and everyone played solid roles, fewer stupid shots, and trust the best players on the court. I think Michael Porter Jr. had to trust himself for one. And Jokic, just do that all the time, dude. He absolutely – he didn't eat uh, Stephen Adams' lunch – he like had Stephen Adams' mom make a whole uh, meal for him, and then ate everything. That was one of the most dominant performances. And afraid that a skinny Jokic wasn't going to be able to bang in the paint like he used to, not a problem at all. Well, and he looks the same. Like I think that we all overhyped this whole like he's lost a lot of weight. He looks like the exact same player he was in the latter half of the season before it was canceled. Yeah. Uh, I think it was a little overblown, but it was nice to remember that Jokic has another playoff level, and we're still in the regular season technically, but I'm excited to see that transpire. But I think the real story of the Nuggets through the first two games has coincided with Michael Porter Jr. After their scrimmages were done last week, before they started playing a game, Michael Porter Jr. goes on Snapchat and says that coronavirus is part of a bigger agenda for controlling the masses and keeping the population controlled through, uh, basically, the implication was, this is thinning the herd. (sighs) Yeah. Um, Like, you have to remember, especially now, like, I'm almost 30, and I look at these players, like, I almost idolize players that are, like, significantly younger than us at this point. Um, Dude is, I think, 21, maybe 22. There's room to be stupid, especially on social media. But he's had an interesting relationship to um, Snapchat and Twitter. Like, right after the, like, rookie symposium with the NBA, um, more laughable but dumb that he posted a picture of Snapchat when Adam Silver, the commissioner, was showing uh, a slide with his phone number on it. And he posted that. And so then all of a sudden people are texting Adam Silver like, hey, MPJ's an idiot. He uh, gave away your, he doxed you pretty much. Um, And then during the George Floyd protests, he had like actually a pretty nuanced take, 
But it was kind of like a read the room thing where he said, I'm praying for the cops as well. And Twitter doesn't want nuance and certainly don't want in that situation for you to be thinking about the souls of the people who murdered George Floyd. Um, Which, I mean, I think rationally and like in our like the people who are like we're for peace and for accepting everyone it completely is like a yes we should be like in how this movement has been over the century you want to pray for a change of heart and the health of those people but you can't say all that in a 15 second snapchat no no you can't and um it then puts the onus on you to defend yourself when people whether willingly or not, misinterpret what you say. Um, and the, like, I give him credit, because it was just more nuanced. After me thinking that he was just a, a big dummy, I was like, okay, well, he's he's got some substance to himself. But then flipping that to the coronavirus thing, it's just like, the, the teams had to have briefings with people. It's like, hey, don't say dumb shit about coronavirus, please. Like, we wouldn't spend, well, it was like $170 million for this bubble if it wasn't, like, a legit thing. Um, so that's, I feel like you just have to do a lot of, like, critical thinking and then choosing not <laughs> to think critically by making that point. Um, well, and, I mean, it became an immediate story. Like, it was on ESPN about the Nuggets having to talk to him. And, you know, uh, Malone wisely said, like, I'm not going to stifle any players voices but it did remind me of the reason that one of the reasons i hated being in the locker rooms and being closer to the teams was i would find out stuff about players that i didn't want to know yeah and i feel like this was this was one of those things and i mean it to his credit he's been under the spotlight since he was drafted um and really before because he was number one prospect out of high school expected to go number one in the draft had was like a maybe more respected than Drew Locke at Missouri at the time, mm-hmm. and then it all sort of all sort of uh, came together where he got injured, and then he didn't really have that. Yeah, and like he was off social media for a really long time because I'm checking some of his messages. Like a lot of the comments were just like, "Bro, get healthy, come play." Like really, when you think about it, it's not the player but the person. He had to deal with like a lot of scrutiny and just idiots like, yeah, commodifying his existence. So I, I get that, and but he's had like a lot of pressure, and he's been moving to the last game, showing that okay, he's mentally tough enough to ride the waves of his own stupidity in ways and other people's stupidity, and still come out and know how to ball. Um, so he. He, his Miami game was 11 points and one rebound, and I think some of this was probably the media stuff. Like I think that he's young, and he, is at, he has proven that he is at times emotional, mm-hmm. and I do think that that may have played some into it. But after the game, uh, he texted Malone and said, don't give up on me, and Malone was like, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying with you. Malone talked about how he really wanted to see the rebounding go up, and that was the thing that he felt like Michael Malone, or Michael Porter Jr. was missing. Um, Porter comes out, not only has 37 points, a career high by far, he also has 12 rebounds and really helps propel the Nuggets to victory. It just, I got choked up a little bit because I love Michael Malone. I just thinking like two seasons ago, he's now arguably the best coach in Denver and perhaps one of the best. He's not better than Bednar. Okay, not better than Bednar. 
Um, but Bednar doesn't have the personality to go with how good of a coach he is. Like Bednar is like, I think in some ways they're similar. Bednar never gets too excited. Malone will fluctuate in a way to mess with the refs, mm-hmm. but sorry. Continue with your Malone thing. Uh, I just, love I just had to defend <laughs> Bednar there. <laughs> uh, but at the point about Porter Jr., I think one big th- thing in the stats you stated was the rebound discrepancy. Dude is actually, he's like a really good rebounder. And I think regardless of whether he's shooting well, you can tell is he engaged in the game is if he's grabbing boards, especially defensive boards because that kind of requires more work in terms of being focused because you're not trying to get a shot up after you get a defensive rebound the way that you do an offensive. So seeing him go from 1 to 12, I think that's really going to be the bedrock of his career in moments when He's not going to be the greatest shooter ever all the time. <laughs> so when those shots aren't falling, I think the way for him to stay engaged and to keep his own confidence is to grab boards. So I think that's that's what I want to see more than anything. He may not repeat with 37 points. Certainly would love to see him like starting to average 20 for the rest of these um, seeding games. And then we can talk later about when – when that everyone's healthy, exactly how many minutes it gets, does he start through the playoffs? Well, and I mean, that really is becoming the question. So uh, we're recording this before the Spurs game. We don't know if Murray will play today or not. Barton and Harris are both out again. And you have to start to wonder what kind of contributions both of those players will make. Barton has been iffy when he's come back sometimes from injuries, and it's taken him a long time to find his rhythm. I don't expect Harris to really make any sort of impact. It's really been the last two years where it feels like he's just been trying to get over one long injury, mm-hmm. and we haven't seen the player before. So, I mean, do you disagree on either of those? Like, do you see either of them contributing, or do we need to start looking at this team as it's Murray, Jokic, and it has to be Porter and the supporting cast at this point? Um, well, I mean, everything falls on their newest max player in Jamal Murray. Um, If Jamal Murray is able to play to the level and consistency that, of course, like Tim Conley and ownership saw when they paid him, um, then we don't need to talk about Will Barton and Gary Harris. I think it's... We need... We need like 70% from at least one of those dudes in Harrison Barton because you just can't rely on Torrey Craig to be an offensive player mm-hmm. uh, in the same way that especially Barton. Like Barton at the beginning of the season, the Nuggets are holding on to the third seed because Barton was such a great consistent player at the beginning of the season. So, But do you actually see either of them coming back and adding that meaningful given their history after injuries. I have more faith in Barton than Harris, which, like, life comes at you real fast. <laughs> um, that would not have been a statement I would have made almost at any other point. It was really just, like, I don't see... I don't want Gary to have that pressure on himself, but I just also don't see a space where he's going... I want him to be a decent defender mm-hmm. and um, not to be a negative on offense. Whereas Craig is a decent defender and almost assuredly a negative on offense. So that's that's all I have hopes for Harris and I want Barton to be better than PJ Dozier. So 
P.J. Dozier and Troy Daniels, who weirdly had the chance to, like, win the game uh, in the fourth quarter. And after, like, how well Jokic and uh, MPJ were playing, and Monte Morris, for that matter, it was just weird to see the guy who had no minutes. Yeah, I mean, it was clear that that was a broken play. It was never supposed to go yeah. to him, and he should have passed it. I don't know what the what the thought was, especially because he wasn't even lined up for a three. Like, what? That's not his shot. Yeah. That was very weird. Talking about high hopes, um, the Colorado Rockies are 8-2, and two, tied for their best start in franchise history. I will say the other best start was 2011, and they completely fell apart after that. Mm-hmm. But we're only playing 60 games. Eight and two through a sixth of the season, really good. If they were two and eight, we'd say the season was over. Yeah. So currently leading the National League West over the Dodgers, and it's really been come out of nowhere in a lot of ways where the improvements we needed to see from people have transpired. It's sort of the opposite of what happened last year, where we said if you trust the Rockies and the way that they trust their guys, they should be good. That's happening at least through ten games two times through the pitching rotation with Marquez uh, getting three starts and uh, Chichi Gonzalez being decent as a fifth starter in his one start so far. It's really been propelled by the extra pitches that pitchers are throwing. Freeland and Sensatella have both found their curveballs and sliders in interesting ways where Freeland was throwing four pitches about equally and then also had his cutter coming in some of the time. And Sensatella had no movement for the last year and a half on his pitches and that's come back at home. So it's been it's been really quite a turnaround. And then you add on top of that the Rockies veteran signing guys, Matt Kemp, Chris Owings, and Daniel Murphy have all been hitting for them. Yeah, it's it is a small sample size, but get out of my face. We get to celebrate um the National League West leaders right now. I mean, this has to be one of their best stretches in late July, early August in franchise history. Like, if you just took that chunk, yeah. historically terrible time for the Rockies. Absolutely. And so, like, I was listening to another podcast, and they were just talking about teams that, like, if they theoretically win the World Series, who deserve an asterisk? And they said, the Rockies absolutely would deserve an asterisk. I'll take it if they're able to go that far. But it really is, like, if you look at the last two seasons, um, 2018, which was like Rocktober revisited and then kind of sucked at the end there. And then last season where they absolutely fell off. In these 10 games, you've seen the 2018 pitching the way that it was like, wow, the Rockies have finally gotten over that hump and actually having decent starting rotation. And then last season where in parts of the season, the bats were finally like fully alive where then the pitching fell off. So for this 10-game stretch so far, you've gotten to see both happening in um, great and kind of clutch ways, too. Uh, yeah, I mean, a lot of the games, it's just a few hits. Trevor Story has been really good, like uh-huh. MVP level with uh, the way he's played. He had a couple errors in the f- first few games, and you were like, what's going on with Story? But he's his fielding is back up there. He's made some great plays. Nolan Arenado's fielding has been there, but just in the last couple of days, he started hitting homers. So this has all happened without Arenado at his best. Blackman has uh, found a rhythm. Uh, their supporting cast has been pretty good. So where does it all fall apart? And it is, of course, the eternal Rockies Achilles heel of the bullpen. Yeah. And, like, to the credit of the bullpen so far, they've been surviving in great ways. The 
one collapse was a special was when Wade Davis was trying out there, which I really wish I could like the dude, but um, he was great a few years ago. He does not have the stuff to be or il- the mental mentality. He's walking guys when he's closing, which has been the problem the last couple of years. Is he? You want your closer like maybe your closer makes mistakes, but he can't compound. And that's been the problem. He's now on the disabled list, along with, unfortunately, the closer of the future, and we were hoping this year, Scott Oberg, who yeah. has blood clots again and is probably out for the year. Well, that's really, like, the Rockies, <laughs> in small credit to Jeff Breidich, we talk about the ways that he's, like, especially in terms of batters, like, has signed people, you're just like, Ugh, what? Um or not signing people is like, come on, please help the team. They've been willing to spend money on pitchers, especially rotational guys, namely like a Brian Shaw, a Wade Davis. um, Jake McGee. Jake McGee. And unfortunately, all the people that they've spent money on have sucked, but like dudes who have been with the organization, like a Scott Oberg, a Kyle Freeland, Jairo Diaz, who's looking good. Yeah. um, All those, like Scott Oberg at one point, he was just like a rotational guy, um, like behind Adam Adovino, who I miss so much. Um, Adam Adovino, who's still pitching well in New York. Yeah. uh, I really wish we had held on to him. But there's, the bullpen has depth and value. So I think that's a definitely... If the bullpen stops being as pretty decent as they have been, things can fall apart quickly. But like, I want to be able to trust the process that this season, for whatever sport you're choosing to care about, is not the real thing. But if we're looking to next year, if Scott Ober can come back healthy, if we can keep the starting rotation together, especially Sensatella, Marquez, and Freeland, like... Good job, Rockies. We we might owe um, Jeff Breidich an apology twelve months from now. I'm gonna, I'm going to hold out on that one. <laughs> uh, the other things that I think we just have to look out for is they have a very home heavy schedule right now. They're going to go on the road for single series a couple times, but this is really the stretch. So yeah. they need to stay hot here because we're always worried about those bats falling apart, and all of their Dodgers games are coming uh, in the second half of the season. And you know they. They really probably can't afford to lose all, I think, 10 games against the Dodgers. No, but it's it's okay to kind of accept that they're not going to stay this hot. And especially with the Dodgers and their pitching staff, we can't expect the Rockies to keep up. But I, th- I want... I think the Rockies know that there's a they like acknowledge the chip on their shoulder, the fact that they're not getting respect and trust it, like we have two possible MVP candidates in especially story, and if Nolan turns it on, then like we've got a good team. This has been a good team, not just in like the ways that they've won, but the ways that they've persevered and like come back in games. So uh I don't think they're going to close this season out on top of the division, but I want them to make the Dodgers sweat, who have been like the heir parents for so long. And again, so the playoff format, the top two seeds in each division automatically get in. So that's really where you want to be. If you're that, 
if you're the second best team in your division and of all the other second best teams, you're going to get uh, technically a home series for that best of three first round. Yeah. Um, so all the games would be played at Coors Field. You think better for the Rockies, although historically the last few times they've played a home game at Coors Field in the playoffs, they've lost. So uh, moving on to the Colorado Avalanche, we're in this weird place with them where they have two more games, and by this time next week, they, they may be actually be playing their first game uh, a week from today as we're recording this on a Wednesday. But we have no idea who their opponent is. It could still be one of any eight teams, and they could be at any of the top four seeds. It's in the, we're in this very weird position. But I just thought we should focus for a minute on Nazem Kadri. We talked early in the podcast about how he got that goal with .01 seconds on the clock to beat the Blues. And this is a big playoffs for him as a moment of redemption. So uh, Nazem Kadri last summer, uh, the Avs traded Tyson Berry and Alexander Kerfoot to the Toronto Maple Leafs for him to be their second line center behind McKinnon. Uh, as you probably remember, Joe Sackick felt like they needed some consistency in the forward group because outside of the McKinnon line, no one was scoring consistently. So mm-hmm. he got Kadri, he got Burakovsky, he got Donskoy, and Nachushkin, who's been the surprise signing of the year. But really, they were looking for some stability there, and it turned out to be a great season, despite his season being shortened by injury and COVID. He scored 58 points, best season of his career, um, and he's played a decade now. But wondering about Kadri in the playoffs has always been something that I think Avs fans should have thought about and people have thought about in the league. In the last two playoffs, he has been suspended for dirty plays against the Bruins both years, and his absence ended up costing Toronto as they didn't, uh, they didn't advance as far in the, in the playoffs as they would have liked to. So he has a label as a repeat offender. And as we know, having one of our own in Gabe Landeskog, that's a label that the league doesn't let go of easily. And so you were like, he has to be careful. On top of that, he is really battling as someone on the Hockey Diversity Alliance, which is a group that was started, um, made up of people of color within the NHL, which there aren't very many of them. There is documented... racism in the NHL, both from fans, from coaches who have been fired in the last year, players who have come forward and basically said, racism cut my career short in Akima Lou. So a lot on his shoulders, and he has handled that well. He and uh, Pierre-Edouard Belmar stood with the Wilds' Matt Dumba and Jordan Greenway at their scrimmage last week in a sign of solidarity. They all put their hands on each other's shoulders, which ended up being the first big moment um, in the Black Lives Matter movement for the NHL. And then Matt Dumba made a great speech and knelt. And then we've started seeing some other things crop up. So a long way for the NHL to come. And part of that has been on Kadri's shoulders. And just, if you were rooting for anyone to be a hero early in this run, I was just happy that it was Kadri. Totally. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, he's of Iranian descent. Lebanese. Lebanese. Oh, uh well, strength and peace to Lebanon yeah. after um, the explosion yesterday. Um, it's an interesting time, especially for any of the sports. And we'll probably do a Denver stories talking about the wider scope of politics and sports and how those aren't disparate things at all. Um, but it's 
it's interesting for like especially the non-black majority sports or heavy sports where um well even hockey is like mostly even non-american so it's an interesting place for one of the most international sports to try to find a voice but um i think i think Kadri is kind of like pk suban in that courting controversy as a good player um and then trying to separate those two or accepting both as a whole um um i think it'd be really cool to see him have that moment like beyond sports center top 10 plays uh but i just like the way the team is going to succeed it has to be everyone coming together and it was just super cool to see him uh hit the goal and the whole team then kind of like dogpiling him and then the super awkward five to ten minutes where they were viewing it and then you're just hearing them celebrate once uh, the refs called it. Uh, yeah, I think moving forward, it'd be great to see Kadri highlighted, but you really then more so just want to see the um, front-line dudes and McKinnon, Rantanen, Makar, Landeskog, I want to get some spotlight on them as well. Yeah, and I think all of them played pretty well. Makar is definitely looks rusty so far in the early games, but McKinnon looks up to speed. Uh, Landis Gog and Rantanen are both making pretty good plays. Um, but, I mean, it's really it's going to be an interesting couple months because this is a Stanley Cup favorite. And it's been a long time since we could say that about the Colorado Avalanche. So yeah. very excited for the next couple of months in whatever form that they play in. And I do think the overtime game between the Canadians and the Penguins really uh, made it clear the difference between overtime with fans and overtime without fans. Like there's just, there's something about being in that building or hearing that building on TV when the whole energy of the fans is propelling the players. that I think we're going to miss that a little bit. Uh, I'm happy if the Avs just decide to win all their games in regulation this year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, before we go, let's just talk about the, revolving specter of coronavirus. Uh, there's a report out of Colorado State yesterday that um, multiple staff and players came forward privately and said that the administration and football coaches are trying to stifle how widespread coronavirus has been, not following safety protocols, not having people quarantine. And this is going to get really ugly real quickly to the point where uh, Steve Adazio, the guy that just loves being dudes, is suddenly in the spotlight, and if this report turns out badly, he is never going to coach a game for the Rams. Yeah. But other players are coming forward and saying this isn't true. So it's just a a fog of of coronavirus up there in Fort Collins. Well, it really just speaks to now there's almost a normalcy to corona. Um, like going back to our episode right before um, the league got shut down, and Lord, we were just babes in the wood. We had no idea. But it, it really shows that even at this point, there's still just not any consistency. And it is dumbfounding to me that any organization is still trying to hide things. Uh, and especially like a mid-major, or however you phrase it, um, team like CSU is still so reliant on football team for revenue that they're willing to risk. Um, not even just, like, <laughs> player safety. Like, 
still children in a lot of ways safety, but they're uh, willing to risk the awful press that comes with that. And, I mean, college football is just a disaster right now. UConn announced today that they are not going to play football this year, the first Division One school to opt out. The Pac-12 is dealing with a player boycott over both how they're handling social justice issues and safety protocols around coronavirus. There's uh, reports that the Power Five conferences may split off from the NCAA and that the NCAA was trying to cancel football season and the Power Five conferences said, good luck. We, we, you have no power over us. College football is in the worst position with the most number of players traveling, players that are not paid and have no union and are trying to speak for themselves where their livelihood is on the line. And because, again, it's a lot of people in color coming from sometimes not the best well-off backgrounds, this is already hitting them. They're seeing the coronavirus effects more than the college presidents who are worried about money. Yeah, I mean, it's a microcosm of society. Like, corona has stripped away a lot of the pleasantries, if you will, of um, sports and politics, which we'll talk about more because it's unavoidable. But just the idea that I think there was, it was like in a um, Zoom conference call with uh, some of like the regents or whatever the phrasing is of SEC people. It was like they said, the only reason why we're doing this is to make money, which I can appreciate it if you're straightforward. But if schools aren't having students on campus, the idea that your unpaid um, football players need to be on campus for some reason it's just the logic and argument outside of like we just we're trying to make money falls on deaf ears to me and it's i think college football is a huge money maker for schools and it's intricately tied into the economy of the university industrial complex but i just i don't know what facts and figures are looking at where they're like this is going to be worth all the trouble because you can't have you're not going to have like a hundred thousand fans in stadiums the way that some schools are used to, and I don't think you're going to be seeing as many people watching it as you hope. Like baseball and basketball have all had not had the hugest numbers in terms of um, viewership. So it's just an absolute mess, and it just speaks to, like, we didn't take it seriously in spring, didn't, then got lax in summer, expecting somehow we're just going to pull things off in fall. And there's, like, 120 different uh, schools in the NCAA, like, Division One. The NFL doesn't know how they're going to pull it off. MLB has had troubles pulling it off. We, you're not going to be able to put these people in bubbles. Um... I mean, we could just rant about it, but it's an absolute mess, and I th it think it's going, it's changing the face of college football forever. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's one of those things that I've been saying is that the coronavirus has sped up a lot of things where it was clear on the horizon college football as we know it was in trouble because so many schools lose money on it. It's not sustainable. We don't know what the future of universities are at this point. And suddenly it's come into the forefront, mm -hmm. all of the issues. Uh, and we're seeing that everywhere. Uh, Colorado High School Athletic Association, uh, CHASA, has moved football to the spring. So they're doing the exact thing you're saying. They're pushing the fall's problems into January. 
There's Cricket. She's upset about the college football schedule <laughs> be or the uh, high school football schedule being canceled. Um, and I mean, you know, Juwan James opting out for the Denver Broncos. That's just turned into basically a lot of people who you realize don't look at athletes as humans. They're just like, just play football for me. That's what all the comment sections are. And you're just like, what is wrong with you? These are people's lives. Um, so it's going to be, I mean, we're going to have new things on this every week. I think that, you know, baseball should have been a wake-up call for everyone with what happened to the Marlins and then the Cardinals. As most people have pointed out, the worst run organization and the best run organization in baseball. Uh, so, I I mean, this is the specter over all of this is one person in any of these bubbles could pop the bubble. One outbreak in the NFL could bring the whole season down. Like, we're just, we don't know, and we're just trying to enjoy the sports still. Yeah, and the thing about that, with, co- with college football, one 19-year-old can bring the dominoes down on that front. Well, and if my economic engine was reliant on co- on the University of Colorado students, I would be very scared of being an alumni myself. <laughs> Well, that's it for the Denverse. Uh, We'll be back next week. I'm Derek. I'm Quinn. See ya.